Greetings, and welcome to Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. My name is Kev Kozer, and I'm here with my co-host, J.G. McQuarrie. Say hi, J.G. Hey there, Kev. How are you doing this week? Well, I feel like my history has been rewritten, but it's so hard to tell these days. It's almost the problem with rewritten history is that you just can't remember what's happened. But what we can very much remember is that this week we are completing the Prime Trilogy, which means we are covering the Architects of History. We've been very, very complimentary, I think it's fair to say, about the first two entries in the trilogy. So this will be our chance to see whether Big Finish are capable of sticking the landing. So, Kev, would you care to give us our introduction? Sure. Uh, Elizabeth Klein has, after taking the Doctor's TARDIS in Survival of the Fittest, gone about and changed history so there is a i guess it's a continuing third reich or fourth reich or some sort of reich that has now colonized the moon in 2044 uh the doctor is her prisoner but the doctor has the consciousness of our doctor from our timeline transported there three days ago he doesn't know the actions of his self in the current timeline the doctor's companion or the other Doctor's companion, I should say, Rachel, is on the base trying to free the Doctor and set history right back on track. And part of that plan involves the Salations, assisted also by the other Doctor, who are given time travel technology 100 years in the future to travel back to this moon base to attack it. Uh, the Doctor ma- manages to escape, and with all sort of the chaos going on, does manage to reclaim his TARDIS, and with Klein, sets history right. And... Yeah, I think that about covers it without getting into extraordinary amount of detail. Yeah, I think it does. And one of the things about trying to summarize this story is that uh, there is a lot of detail to go over here. And there's a lot of moving parts in, in this story as it tries to wrap up the Klein trilogy, as it tries to tell its own story, as it tries to get into the kind of whole timey-wimey stuff. So, um, yeah, do you, do you think this is a good conclusion to the Klein trilogy? Do you think Big Finish managed to pull it off here? Yeah, I definitely think so. Um I mean, it's a great story on its own right, and I think it really brings home the themes of this trilogy to a close. I mean, when Big Finish started doing this sort of trilogy concept with um, the infamous key to time, um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's sort of the limit. Not covered by this podcast. Yeah. Uh, and so the limit thing is, oh, it's three stories you can string together and do a big story about. And I mean, this is also three stories that take place in continuity with each other right, right after the other just a small gap between stories one and two. But I think this gets the idea much more cohesively than a lot of these other trilogies do, whereas it's such a thematic throw line with sort of the lessons Klein is learning and how the Doctor has an impact on her. And so I think just on an overall sort of overarching scale, it's such a massive success in sort of outlining those themes of just um, how you can't sort of impose your will on history and how power is such like a delicate thing and like a terrible thing to have and and sort of digging to the morality of the doctor himself and like how the seventh doctor what lengths he'll go to in order to make things right as he sees it and whether that's good or just and i think it really tackles those questions really well i in addition like i said just being a great story in its own right yeah um i mean definitely i i think this is a startlingly good way to end this trilogy there's one thing i might question and we'll get to that a little bit later on when we start to talk about the conclusion of the story um but other than that i do really love this story i think it's terrific and one of the things i love about it is is kind of what you were mentioning 
about power and the way that Klein kind of loses that ability to judge why she's even doing this anymore. She keeps rewriting history. She keeps trying to get it perfect. She can never quite get it right, but she forgets about Joseph. She forgets about, um, you know, the real reason for it. She just ends up causing more and more damage and, and just ends up almost kind of caught in a feedback loop. She kind of ends up almost just doing this because she does it. Um, you know, the, the, the conversations between Klein and the doctor when the doctor's still in, her prison cell, in, in his prison cell in the first couple of episodes, just the two of them talking to each other, I think it's some of the most riveting material that Big Finish have ever put together as they probe each other, as they question each other's philosophies, as, um, as Klein tries to draw some sort of equivalence between them, but the Doctor sidesteps. This beautiful sense of the Doctor having um, power in a situation where he is conspicuously powerless, that he's, you know, he's this chain prisoner in a cell. You know, Klein has everything. She is the TARDIS. She has control. She has rank. She has privilege. All this kind of stuff, and yet this, this you know, little man is the one who really wields the, the true power. It's just so brilliantly balanced and i and that, that all those kind of investigations into the nature of power how it can exert itself sort of builds up to that huge revelation where the doctor has that that big speech where you know i orchestrated uh you know the the arrival i i gave time travel technology to this alien race so they could defeat you and blah 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 and, and the, the 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 whole uh salation uh invasion that the doctor thinks he may be masterminded but he's also kind of bluffing it's just so well handled it's just a beautiful kind of uh yeah sort of meditation on power power structures and 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 how and why they work and, and the motivations behind people who, who try and use them. And it's, it's, it's so gloriously well written. Yeah, it is just, I mean, gloriously well, written is just the best way to put it. Sebastian <laughs> uh, <laughs> McCoy is giving one of his best performances here. And I, and I don't say that lightly. He is just absolutely so haunted here and just so, uh, like, he recognizes the sort of delicacy of the situation and. He just sort of has wits about him, and he never really loses control. But he feels like some of the most like fragile that he's ever felt, while still feeling having that conviction that he is right. And I just the way the story that interrogates that is just so fascinating to me. Yeah, to me as well. And I do love I love McCoy's performance here. It's another one that I kind of slightly uh, not really forgotten about it. I remember him being very good, but I think it's the act of going back to really listening to him and figuring out just what a strong performer he can be, you know, give him this kind of material. It really is just such a terrific performance. And that's why those scenes that I was talking about before between Klein and the Doctor are so well anchored. I mean, uh, Tracy Charles we've talked about before in previous episodes, and we know how, how great she is, and we know how wonderful Sylvester McCoy can be. And their scenes together have been kind of a highlight of this trilogy. And it's listening to those scenes, again, and particularly in the first couple of episodes, that just highlights how good two people... <laughs> I keep saying this. How good two people talking in a room can be. That's all you need for really good drama and I think I mean if anything the slight problem and it's not really a problem that's too strong but the slight problem with this play is that because the time the doctor and 
Klein and Spen together is so riveting because they're such a good pair of performers because they work off each other so well like the the, the 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 material with the kind of like the invasion and all that kind of stuff slightly uh fades into the background i mean the solutions are fine as a as a race and i suppose it's an interesting quirk that they're there's sort of sharks in spaces rather than you know the usual stumpy stumpy bad guys but they are also still kind of just stumpy stumpy bad guys and it's sort of it's not their fault i mean you could have any race in that and they would still pale you know insignificance next to the way that the doctor and Klein are are sort of uh, interacting it could be the Daleks it could be the Cybermen it could be you know the Vardens it doesn't matter they're there they fulfill a function and they're, they're you know they're fine they're they're perfectly good threat but it's every time every time we cut back to the Salation stamping about the bridge and, and demanding stuff and your plankton and all that kind of stuff I just want to get back to the Doctor and Clyde. That's, 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 but that's, again, that's a, a sign of how well those scenes are well written, is that even when you kind of move on to other parts of the story, those are the ones that are drawing you back. I think it's almost ballsy to have this story about, like, time being altered and everything around that, just, like, who knows what's real and what's not, and then have it be a base under siege story. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I mean that that's the best way to describe it. It's um yeah. Yeah, it's really just people in a base being sieged by aliens and and like you said a lot of it is just conversations with two people in a room. And um I mean that's not bad. You can tell I it's this is evidence proof positive. You can really tell like a great you can take the doctor formulas and still tell something great with them if the specific elements are stand out enough. And so, yeah, I mean, even though we have, like, turmoil between the humans in the base and the aliens threatening to beat down the door and some of them get inside and they start making demands and it's all the cliches we all know and maybe not love but are familiar with. Um, yeah, this is still has so much more to say. And, you know, even, like, you're right, the scenes of the Doctor and Klein are the standouts. Absolutely. There's no way the story, that would not be the standout unless something has gone terribly wrong. But... I still really do love some of the other drama going on here. I think Rachel is such a fascinating character and a general Lieutenant Tendexter is also a very fascinating character in his own way. And I definitely don't mind spending time with them. Oh, no, I completely agree. I, I, I When I say that they're the standouts in the scene and the others are slightly pales, it's not really to yeah. sound as a, uh, critical of the other ones. It's just an indication of how strong that material is. And I think, yeah, Rachel being this companion that, you know, the Doctor has basically uh, forgotten about because of the way that Klein has been rewriting time. It's a really bold decision to have a character like that that normally the Doctor would find either some way to save or through the way that the timeline was restored, we'd find out that, uh, you know, she actually got to live uh, a normal life and, 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 you know, got on with her stuff or whatever. But here... She just dies. There's no equivocation about it. And it's a proper tragedy. And I really I really admire the fact that the, the script is sort of brave enough to do that. And I really love uh, uh, Lenora uh, Kreicho, I think is the correct pronunciation. She's brilliant. She was in Sugar Rush, which is one of my favourite TV shows. I love Sugar Rush so much. But she's been in Being Human. She's been in Doctor Who. She's in Gridlock uh, on TV. Uh, but she's just a great actor. And she's in Black Mirror as well. She's in White Bear, which is just one of my 
favorite episodes of television. Oh, I never, I never yes. want to have to watch again. But yeah. she's great in that story. That's such a powerful piece of television. Um, I love it. Uh, so she's a very, very gifted actor, and I think she gives a lot here um, to a character which really. I think one of the things about her performance is she's a very likable performer. She's a very easy person to like. And that's really important because that really drives the, I guess, the the pain that you feel when you realise she's not going to get out of this. And she doesn't. She dies at the end. Um, it, it's the fact that she's such an easy person to invest in. And you need that from the actor. There's plenty on the plenty on the page, which, you know, helps you feel sympathy for the character, helps you understand it and all the rest of it. And we have a lot of familiar beats, which um, are kind of, you know, especially if you think of Ace, uh, you know, the way, you know, like Chris Fenrick, she complains, oh, the doctor doesn't, but you don't explain everything to me. Why won't you tell me what's going on? And it nearly costs the doctor everything in, in Chris Fenrick. And we have similar kind of beats being replicated here, um, but with the, with Rachel, um, instead of getting the, the moment where the doctor's able to swoop in and, and sort of save her or whatever, she just dies. And it's, it's sort of fascinating to see that kind of alternative version of something like the morality that the doctor uses in Curse of Fenric and see it kind of destroying somebody that he, again, doesn't even realize exists it's and and that likability um that rachel has is is a really kind of key factor to appreciating that yeah i think like you said the fact that he never goes back for her like she says and she gets this fantastic monologue where the worst thing would not be dying but never living and never traveling with the doctor never having her eyes opened and that is just so heartbreaking because the doctor i mean there's another heartbreaking moment earlier that ties into it where klein is afraid the doctor is going to go back to rescue Rachel, and he just responds, "Who? Who is that?" <laughs> and uh, it's oh god, it's just so sad. And then we have this coda at the end, where the doctor, and you almost expect him to like go back to Rachel, but he just goes back to Klein instead, and Rachel is just forgotten. And it is, it is. I mean, it's hard to describe as a fate worse than death, even if that's kind of what she says earlier. Because I, I assume she's still alive in some form like Klein is in this new universe. But, yeah, it's just so melancholy. It just hits this very specific and odd sort of set of emotions that you weren't expecting this, show, this story to hit. That can really only sort of hit in a sci-fi story, this idea of uh, being sad for a version of yourself that doesn't exist anymore. Well, what I like about it is it never becomes sort of maudlin yes. or self kind of pitying or whatever she gets this big speech about um how you know you know how her life would be worse you know she'd never travel with the doctor and that's exactly what she gets and and i think the way that we never return to her actually makes that kind of gut punch all the more powerful because we know that's what she dreamed of and we know that that's something which will simply uh, you know never happen so we get the little coda with klein you know, working for Unit and, and again, kind of being a very kind of Liz Shaw sort of character towards the end of it, you know, smart and intelligent and she's at Cambridge and she's working with Unit and blah, 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 all those kind of beats, which is great. And, and, and it's an interesting ending for Klein. And this is, this brings me up against something I was uh, alluding to earlier on in, in the episode. And I'm really curious to hear what your opinion is on this because I have a question for you. And it's this. Prior to that final scene, we get the scene uh, with Klein 
and the doctor in the TARDIS at the end. And the doctor says that they can wait there forever. They're outside time. They're outside space. There's no compunction to do anything. And we get this scene whereby it's, uh, you know, a press of the button. It might restore Klein's timeline. It might restore the doctor's timeline. But they both kind of agree that it's going to be better than whatever it is they've just witnessed with the um, uh, desolation invasion. And we get a definitive answer to it. They press the button. And we find out that it's the Doctor's timeline that's restored. We get the version of Klein, who's not a Nazi, but in fact ends up working for UNIT and, and, and all the rest of it. And there'll be a couple of Klein stories that come further down the line as far as Big Finish are concerned. But my question is, do you think it's better that we find out what happened and we get the proper timeline restored and we get a version, we get to see a version of Klein who isn't a Nazi? Or do you think it would be better if the Doctor sort of pressed the button and then the episode ended, so we were left with the ambiguity, and we don't find out what happens to Klein. That's a great question. Um, I mean, yeah, left with ambiguity, I mean, there's the central issue with the ambiguity there is that they continued to make Doctor Who. And, uh, well, yes. Yeah, so it, would, it was the Doctor's timeline no matter what happens, and you just have to go in knowing that. But yeah, it was not resolved what happens to Klein. Um, I do wonder, because... I mean, it's very clear that Big Finish set up the coda so they could see, and more Klein stories to follow. And I haven't listened to those later Klein stories, but I just can't imagine them interesting me, interesting me much because I don't, I don't know what Tracy Childs, what's left of that character. I mean, without her being essentially, for lack of a better word, evil, it's not as interesting a companion for sure. And so, like, I mean, they could be brilliant stories, but I don't think I'd be able to shake the sense that the character's been defanged a bit. Just going off the fact that she's now working for a unit and seems like very happy to see the doctor in that sort of coda. I guess I guess just probably answer your question. Maybe it would have been a better story, right, if we didn't really have an answer there because, yeah, it just doesn't really seem to serve a purpose beyond the tease of more stories to come. I agree with you. I think the principal reason behind it is is probably less kind of artistic and more. Oh well, we we can probably get Christy Childs back at some point in the future. That'd be nice. Um, which is an impulse I entirely understand because she's great. Um, but it's that it's that big finish thing of, of yeah, you, you quit while you're ahead. Um, I also haven't listened to those later Klein stories, and that also says something as well, because, you know, well, both of us love Klein, but we haven't felt the need to go on and listen to those other stories. And taking away her, her kind of principal character hook does to me, well, I mean, it's made, again, very explicit kind of in those last couple of minutes. She's basically just Liz Shaw, so... I'm not sure what the win is there. You've turned a character who was perfectly and perfectly unique, and you've turned her into a character who's really similar to another character we're already extremely familiar with. I'm not. I'm not sure what the win is there. Again, other than getting in Tracy Childs back, and obviously, you know, we can't have uh, uh, we can't have uh, Liz Shaw back, unfortunately. So, I, I, I mean, like, I, I do get the impulse, but it feels to me like one of those times where. Um, yeah, the ambiguity might have been a more satisfying conclusion. But that's also, I have to say, that's kind of really my only big question mark. And it, like, if you're listening to this and you're saying, oh, don't be ridiculous, you know, it, it's fine. You know, I'm happy to hear the answer. I think, I think giving it a definitive answer is, is perfectly legitimate as well. I don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing. It's just not necessarily 
in this particular case the choice the choice that I would have made. But um, throughout this story, Tracy Charles makes such a such a case for herself. The way that she's able to infuse so much into Klein, and particularly that there's that scene where um, they're they're on the uh, in the command center of the moon base, and um, she gets that speech uh, to the doctor where. Um, or actually not to the doctor, to the rest of the staff, where she says, oh, you know, this man could save you. He's not going to, so because it's against his principles, but he could. There you go, doctor. Now you get to die with that smug look in your face. It's such a great character moment from her, because she knows that the emotional manipulation isn't really going to pay off, but damn it, she's going to do it anyway, just just for that moment where she can kind of get one over on him. It, and, you know, the story is full of those kind of moments which are just those lovely examples to give Tracy Charles so much to work with absolutely kind of play to her strengths as as an actor and just you know they're just so well written those moments I, I, I adore them so much throughout this yeah I mean we've talked about what makes Klein sort of unique in previous stories about like what if a companion held an ulterior motive what if a companion like was morally questionable which is relatively fertile territory of Doctor Who. This also is another sort of fertile thing about her. What if a companion just hated the Doctor's guts? It's not something that's explored very often. And uh, this is just so, has so much fun digging into that. They know each other so well after time traveling together. And that just really gives Klein the opportunity to put the screws in at every opportunity in the story. Like I said, that's why this conversation is riveting. Because just that familiarity like she knows how to push his buttons. Even if she's not really successful in provoking a reaction, like you said, it's still always just cut so hard each time. Well, but yeah, absolutely. And it's not just the fact that she has, you know, she's the one in control. What's so great about Klein's position in this story is that she's won. There's no question about it. She's got the TARDIS, uh, the Doctor's in chains, and the Reich has been restored. And she's got power, you know, she's going to ride using this rank Oberst, which is um, uh, colonel or, or group captain, I think, uh, in German. So she's, you know, she's got her rank, she's got her position, she's ordering around people, you know, who technically have rank over her because she's part of this temporal investigations unit. You know, she's got everything. She's won. And yet she's still defeated and that's such a it's it's that journey it's that journey from her success to her kind of defeat and the path that that takes that, that makes for um such riveting drama because even although she's won she's kind of already lost the whole purpose of what she was trying to achieve which was really i mean she obviously she's a nazi she believes in the reich that's fine uh, as far as you know her perspective goes but really she was meant to go back uh, for her love, the love of her life, for Yosef. And um, when they have, when the Doctor and Klein have that conversation about, well, why didn't you go back for him? Well, why didn't you, you know, do the one thing that was meant to be the point of all this? And she can't quite find an answer for him. And that's, that to me, that's the fulcrum around which the whole episode pivots. It's the emotional fulcrum. It's the plot fulcrum. Uh, it's the whole kind of raison d'etre of the piece kind of narrowed down for all her victories, for all her triumphalism, for all her declarations of superiority. That's that's the point. That's where she's vulnerable. And that's what the Doctor can use 
you know, to get past her? And that's, you know, a valid question. It, 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 it undermines what she believes about herself in the same way that she tries to undermine what the doctor believes about herself by drawing these kind of false equivalences between them. And it's a... I mean, I keep using the word riveting, but that kind of almost feels inadequate. It's such a powerful moment where, where Klein kind of has to concede that she doesn't really have an answer to that question. She's afraid that he won't be the same man or she's not certain or she forgets or she loses her way. But I mean, for all the kind of reasons that she comes out with, there's no real answer which is better than she's scared. And that's that's it. That's the key for all that power, for all that ability to travel in time and, and rewrite lives and control history, be the architect of history. She's scared. Hey. And yeah. that's the moment. It's so, it's just genius. I completely agree with all of that. And there's, like you're saying, these false coincidences with Klein and the Doctor. And I think what this story is sort of about is why the Doctor should be allowed to hold this sort of power and a person like Klein can't really handle it. And of course, there's like narrative reasons, just character reasons, as you just went over. But there's also, I think it's just like, there's just a very obvious meta reason. <laughs> I think the story is also somewhat leaning into, which is that the show is called Doctor Who. It's not called Elizabeth Klein. It's, uh, and <laughs> I just, there is just this sense of the inevitable that things will get set right at the end, because of course they have to be. Like this, this isn't an unbound story or whatever. They will, they have a loose canon they must follow. I think that's almost adds a sense of like the sort of dread or tragedy hanging over it all. You know, Klein is going to lose, and even though she is explicitly evil, I mean, you still sort of feel for her. She's still sympathetic in some ways. So it's not like you're mourning the Doctor's victory, but at the same time, it's very much just this. You just you just know it can't work out for her, and that sort of inevitability has a bit of tragedy that we're putting. Because, like I said, this is of course a good thing that the Doctor sets history right and gets rid of the Nazis. But irony, it still plays in that sort of dramatic irony in a way I really like. Um, the the weird comparison that just pops into my head is that Elizabeth Klein is almost like the Frank Grimes from The Simpsons at Homer's Enemy, and that she is. She doesn't understand why the Doctor can do these things and she can't. In the way sort of Frank understands why Homer can do these things and he can't. And her rewriting history is her own electrocuting herself because I'm the Doctor or I'm Homer Simpson. Like, that's a weird comparison, which pops in my mind is the idea of shows playing with this meta element of why this standout one-off character, using them to illustrate why a normal person can't fit into the realm of our great protagonist. No, I think that's a very good comparison, actually. I, I think it works uh, very well. And, uh, you know, by having these characters, by being able to use them as a way of contrasting against our kind of heroes, um, whether it's the Doctor, whether it's Homer, whatever, I, I, I mean, that's sort of what they're there for. It's not just a sort of um, valediction of what the Doctor is or whatever, but it is, particularly in a story like this, I think, it is very much like an exploration of it. I think with the other kind of parallel within the Doctor Who world that I would sort of pull on is um, Journey's End, when the 10th Doctor and Davros are sort of having their conversations at the end of the universe where Davros is desperately trying to pretend um, 
that the doctor and him are are the same um and with the best will in the world this story manages those kind of conversations those kind of false equivalences very much better than journey's end does at least in part because the doctor is actually allowed a voice here whereas david tennant is left looking a bit annoyed inside a force field uh, which is not david tennant's fault obviously um but it's the same idea it's this idea of trying to draw the equivalence between what klein does and what the doctor does but it's done here with real kind of nuance there's real sense that uh in understanding why the doctor is able to do what he does. We get to understand why Klein can't do what she wants to do, um, and that's that's so key to um, kind of exploring the morality of, of what it is the doctor has uh, the ability to do. But I think again, this is where Rachel really comes in as an important kind of sidebar. The doctor does see for lack of a better term, the bigger picture. He does have a much better understanding of what's going on than Klein does. Of course he does. He explicitly says during the, the course of this play, I have seven lifetimes to understand this stuff. You don't. Um, that's fine. Obviously, that's the voice of experience talking. But we have this kind of really important caveat with Rachel. And I think that's the other thing that is really important. It's not just... Um, a kind of unthinking kind of valediction of what the doctor is or what the doctor does because there are casualties there are consequences and he isn't all powerful he doesn't get everything right he makes mistakes and one of the mistakes that he makes is the death of this character who's absolutely crucial through the play she's really the third most important character in the entire play other than the doctor and Klein. And he's responsible for her death without even realizing that she existed. And I think that's a very important kind of balancing act as well. So whilst we do understand why the Doctor has sort of primacy, obviously in a show called Doctor Who, we also get that kind of counterbalance as well, whereby we see, yeah, this is why the Doctor gets to do what he, he does, but he's not perfect. He makes mistakes. He gets things wrong. And, you know, he, he explicitly, again, admits the whole existence of Klein and Klein's timeline is because of a mistake that he made and he needs to correct. So I think that is really important in, in sort of the overall perspective of the play that we get to see his flaws. And equally, that kind of feels a, a, a very nice balance against Klein because, as you said, um, she retains, if not necessarily, a degree of sympathy a degree of kind of uh you know she has motivations which are entirely understandable which is her love and and her loss so even although she's an evil character she's actually you know her pivotal motivations even though she's restored the reich even though she's a nazi that's kind of not her main motivation her main motivation is kind of her love and her loss and so we get kind of a balancing of the scales there as well so she's evil but we understand her because she has these very relatable kind of emotions whilst not necessarily making her a more sympathetic individual and then on the doctor's side we have him being kind of this person who is able to make the big choices but still having the flaws which uh which allow us to understand that whilst what he does is right it's not necessarily perfect that's such Again, I keep using the word genius, but it's such genius writing to be able to balance those two things against each other in such a way. Yeah, speaking specifically about um, characters who are sort of contrasting the Doctor, why they can do these things and their companions and other characters can't, 
I mean, it reminds me of a episode that I'm convinced if I watch again, I'll be able to definitively block it. It's <laughs> my favorite episode of the show, uh, Face the Raven. And Clara is also in the much more sympathetic version of Klein, but still it's what if a companion took on the role of being the doctor and why wouldn't they be able to do it? And uh, I don't know. I just love that episode. I just want to shout it out. <laughs> pretty, that's pretty much the end, beginning and end of my thought. Uh, I also just want to pick up what you said with Rachel. I just think, yeah, it's just so, that contrast is also so important to the story. I mean, not only does she have like a great little tense B plot with her running around with Major Rector and trying to avoid um, getting gunned down and her friendship with Sam, and that's just all good story, meat and potatoes stuff. But what the character represents is this is almost the ideal Doctor Who companion. And this is sort of, it just works in such a brilliant contrast to Klein as sort of the fallen, this is where it can go wrong. Whereas Rachel, she's putting her life on the line for people she never, she just met or never met. She shows as much compassion as the Doctor would. And her only regret is that she didn't get to do it more and that she couldn't spend more time, that she might now not have spent any time with the Doctor. And I don't know, there's just something like, it's such an interesting character to have that uh, be sort of almost the perfect companion in contrast to Klein's very much imperfect one. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, I mean, we haven't really talked about the sidecast all that much, but we should, we should acknowledge that they are kind of um, yeah. important to the play as well. And I think particularly Tendexter, um, played by uh, uh, Lloyd McGuire, is, is a really... He's kind of taken on the more traditional sort of Nazi role, the one that we would probably initially assume that Klein would have. He stomps about themselves. He has contempt for everybody around him. He thinks that his power will render him, you know, immune to any kind of consequence of his actions. Are you, do you mean he, Richter or Tendexter? I guess... Case well, both of them. Yeah. I, well, I, I'm going to come on to Richter, but I think both of them have these kind of um, the, these kind of approaches. Richter as well. I mean, he ends up kind of basically pleading for his family at the end. You know, a destroyed individual, um, and we we get to kind of very um, you know first hand witness um, the, the the worthlessness of the power structures that these Nazis have have put in place. They are essentially futile, and you know that's that's the ultimate kind of horror of, of, of that part of Nazism is that if you if you declare yourself to be the, the, the superior race, you're really screwed when another superior, more superior race comes along and, 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 and you know, it conspicuously demonstrates to you that, that, that what you think you are is not what you are. Um, but both Tendexter and Richter, I think, fulfill that role very well. There's a line um, which, I mean, this is 2010, the story was released, uh, which is five years after Doctor Who came back in uh, in terms of its uh, television revival. And there's a line in this about melting continents, which is definitely, definitely taken from like Parting of the Ways or, uh, you know, um, it, it, it's, oh, it's so similar, it's untrue. There's another line, actually, sorry, I'm rambling now, but anyway, never mind. Um, there's another line about how Rachel gets left a list of instructions, but she's never told what to do. Um, if something goes wrong, and it's exactly the same line that Martha gets in, in Family of Blood um, when after the Doctor's fallen in love with somebody else. So there's lots of lovely little pointers. Uh, well, either lovely little pointers or really clunky references, depending on your point of view, but I thought they worked quite well here. Um, but anyway, yeah, so Tendexter and Richter, both of them, they, they kind of represent the kind of more traditional kind of power structures within sort of Nazism and, and how we would expect 
uh, those kind of things to function. And and like the contempt that radiates out when, when Rachel is prepared to put her life in the line to protect Sam uh, when two of them might survive and one of them might not and all that kind of stuff. It's just, it, it's really, again, it's, a, it's another important sort of check and balance to have because particularly when it comes to, um, as you pointed out, this is basically just a, a base under siege story um, and the natural inclination with a base under siege story is that you're going to have uh, sympathy for people who are in the base. They're the ones that are being attacked. So you want, I mean, it's just logical, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's a, a Tibetan monastery or a moon base, base under siege stories follow the same basic logic, which is the people that are out with the base are the bad guys and the people within the base are the good guys. Except this time, the people within the base are all Nazis. So, you know, it's really important that we get to understand both through Tendexter and through Richter, just how awful these people are and that for all that the um for all the solutions are, are are you know the evil invaders and the bad guys and the traditional sort of doctor who monster sort of way there are monsters on both sides of the base in this particular story and that again is slightly subverting kind of the usual base under siege um approach normally like i say you would you would have sympathies for the people who are besieged uh, and we don't have here and that's and their characters do provide that that really nice balance um i feel a bit sorry for ian hales as sam because i don't know that sam is a particularly um dynamic character <laughs> that sounds harsher than i mean it to he's clearly there for one very specific function which is kind of the lower decks thing um but at the same time it's a fairly functional piece but again it's good that it's there it's good that we get to see something you know, from that kind of perspective, from somebody who's just like a working class member of the base who's otherwise looked down on, he's able to kind of plant the bug in the TARDIS because nobody really thinks twice about him, all that kind of stuff. So it does, it, it works well with, well enough within the play. But uh, yeah, it's really important that those other characters are there to kind of provide that balance. Yeah, Sam is definitely, it feels like the least essential character here. Like you said, um, he is just, he, de- he provides that sort of lower decks perspective, like you said, but then there's a twist where he's actually a Salation spy against his will, and that just feels like plot, plotting, less character-based. I, I wasn't yeah. totally convinced by that plot twist, yeah, I have exactly. to say. It's very loose, it feels like. I don't quite... It just feels like it comes out of nowhere and doesn't really have any basis in it. And it serves a purpose. It gets the Salations to know the Doctor's plan and where his TARDIS is and sort of kicks the final episode in the motion. But it's yeah it's just sort of out of nowhere and not very dynamic either it's uh, i don't know it's the character i have the most trouble with but yeah to your point uh, richter and tendexter they're just fantastically nasty characters richter especially i think nasty applies to him so well the scenes of the interrogation where he's going after rachel and sam and just this ruthlessness is just so deliciously dark um, Ten Dexter, I mean, like you said, like you don't have sympathy for him because he's a Nazi. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, when he's begging for his family's life. You at least you see the other side in as much as you really need to see it. And as glad as I am to see him go, I mean, that final sacrifice is a very is a cool moment in and of itself. Still, it's a very interesting. I think another sort of delicate balance to walk. And yeah, I don't know. It's just a great cast overall. I think this is a great job 
picking and choosing its supporting characters. Even the Salation leader, which, I mean, Stumpy Stumpy Bad Guys is not a bad characterization of Salations. But I think the leader is given just enough personality, even without a name, where, yeah, there's enough going on there. There's the arrogance that is makes him stand out and just the sheer uh, ruthlessness that makes him pop at least a little bit as a character, whereas usually Alien Leader is just very programmatic and rote. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, and, and um, I mean, as far as the Salations are concerned, um, you know, I mean, the Salations appear in a couple of um, past Doctor Adventures that, that Steve Lyons wrote. Um, you know, this isn't their, their sort of first appearance. So he's had the opportunity to get kind of stuck into them and, and get them fleshed out. And I think you get that impression listening to this these aren't just aliens who've been conveniently invented for this story he's clearly written for them a couple of times before and i think that that does help as well i do want to go back to one thing now this may end up and hard to believe though it is from somebody like me but this may end up sounding a skosh pretentious but anyway i'm going to give it a go and we can see what happens when we come out the other side of it and it's getting back to this um dialogue around the nazis in this story and i suppose across the trilogy as well and the idea and we've mentioned this in previous episodes about being able to write for them as interesting characters or as fully fleshed out characters whilst not wanting to make what they stand for in any way sympathetic and that's a very difficult balance to strike uh, as I mentioned before, I think they do it well with Klein because they 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 allow her her motivation to be her kind of lost love, uh, alongside this idea of her her desire for power, and I think that's something which slowly shifts because I think if you think if you listen to a, th- a thousand tiny wings again, which everybody should do because obviously it's bloody brilliant, but if you listen to that, like the reestablishment of the Reich is her main driving goal, and throughout the three plays, she kind of gradually becomes to realize or she gradually comes to realize i should say uh about you so yosef and her lust love and, and all the rest of it and that's fine um so we get motivation for her which allows her to be a, a character that we can invest in without allowing us to be sympathetic towards her kind of political ide- ideology now when it comes to a play like this when we have other kind of nazi characters who are sort of more fleshed out this is the only play that that's really true of we have the miners who we're told in the previous story are kind of fascist analogs but they're not actually stomping around with swastikas in their arms whereas the doctor explicitly says here you know spaceships with swastikas going across the 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 galaxy and these are very explicitly nazi characters and that makes it very hard to do good character work with them which doesn't either end up reducing them to a a kind of um, stereotypical kind of a low, a low cliche or, um, you know, allowing us to become sympathetic for characters who are otherwise repellent and what they stand for. What I think is so impressive about what Steve Lyons does here is that he is able to strike a balance between finding interesting ways of exploring their characters and making them seem like human beings without managing to do that thing of making them sound sympathetic and by what i mean by that to kind of expand on what we were saying before is that the way the characters are portrayed here ten dexter and and richter specifically but also to a certain extent klein 
um, is that they are allowed to be just enough humanity that we understand the emotions that they're going through, we understand the, the debates that they're having without it sort of tipping over into that sort of um, sympathetic line. And so the idea like that, that a Nazi character might plead for his family is entirely relatable, if, you know, in terms of any character wanting to look after the people that they loved, but it doesn't take away from the horror of what it is that character actually represents and that feels like a very realistic way of doing it if you've ever seen documentaries about the third reich or if you've ever seen those um there's uh i think it's a cine film of like hitler in his austrian um castle where he's like laughing and joking and they're like playing with their children all these top ranking nazis some of those evil people that have ever lived but they're kind of going through this sort of family routine they're they're you can see the same um, familial bonds which would exist across any family, uh, but these are unspeakably evil people. And I think that's what this play kind of captures so well. It's able to get to the heart of the fact that even although, the, well, not even although, although these are appalling individuals who represent an abhorrent sort of point of view, that doesn't necessarily detract from the fact that they have these other kind of um, parts to their life and I think if you're discussing a subject like fascism like Nazism that's a really important balance to strike because if you just reduce those people to a series of cliches you know the the, the, the salute and the moustache and all that kind of stuff I think that risks kind of um, depowering them because it makes them a little more than a symbol it's just a funny salute and a funny walk and blah 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 whereas here we get much more sort of complexity we get to understand the way that these people work and even though Tim Dexter and Richter aren't the biggest characters in this play I think it's really crucial for our understanding of that side of the play that we get these humanizing moments that let us see beyond the stereotype of the Nazi, that get beyond the kind of the speeches and the salutes and the jackboots and all the rest of it. So again, I'm sorry if that sounds really pretentious and I know I've gone on a little bit, but I think that's what Steve Lyons does so well. And and I don't know whether it is the best thing that Steve Lyons has ever written, but I think in capturing those elements of um, those characters, it's certainly amongst the best stuff that he's ever written. I'm in unbelievable awe of how good he has managed to strike that balance. So there we go. I'm done. I mean, yeah, just to sort of put a bow on it, it definitely... I mean, you need the humanity for these characters in order to prove that evil is human. And that, that's basically what it is. Like you said, um, yes. you reduce it to a symbol and then it becomes abstract and then we think, well, we can't be like that. But yeah, it's... As if you make them relatable characters and you realize that anyone can be capable of doing awful things uh, in the wrong place, the wrong upbringing, uh, or just given the wrong set of choices, that choosing the wrong set of choices to make. And yeah, I think that is just such a powerful statement. It makes sense why I picked him for the story, because I think he walked that line so well back in Colbitz in Elizabeth Klein's first appearance. And he walks that line so well here. It's just a brilliant, brilliant piece of writing. Yeah, I, I completely agree in that. And uh, to be honest, I don't know that I really have an awful lot more to say in this. It's just, 
It's such a good play. It's such a great conclusion to the Klein trilogy. And, and yeah, I, just, I can't really recommend it more highly than that. Like I said, I think in the last episode, I think this is my favourite trilogy that Big Finish have ever done. Um, maybe I'll say it differently. Maybe I'll say that the next one is when we get stuck into the next stories. But I think that's going to be a discussion for, uh, for the next episode. For now, I think we can probably leave it there and move on to recommendations. So, Kev, what have you got for us this week? All right. This week, I'm going to recommend a movie I just watched last night as part of LA's Beyond Fest to sort of timestamp this. Uh, just That's another recommendation I have. Uh, Beyond Fest in Los Angeles. By the time this comes out, you will have missed it. But keep an eye out for 2022 around the same early October window. Uh, such a fun mini festival of like mostly older movies screening. They get director Q and A's if they can. But it's just fun to see these sort of very genre, also leaning towards horror movies with the crowd, and just getting those reactions. Uh, really fun time. And this specific movie I saw is Possession, the sort of psychological drama by. Apologies for the pronunciation here. Andre Zulowski, I believe is how you say it. Uh, it is a He is a Polish director working in West Germany with grants funding and a film that was shot and acted in English. So, written and acted in English, rather. And, yeah, it's, so there's a lot of uh, <laughs> pan-European stuff going on here. But it essentially stars Isabel Adjani and Sam Neill as this couple. A very early Sam Neill role, worth pointing out. Uh, this couple who is separating. Sam Neill is a spy who just got home from a mission, and his wife has just withdrawn from him. He soon learns that she has taken up a lover, but then the lover uh, also has not seen from her in weeks. And she's just going off to this place, and he doesn't know where. And her behavior is becoming more and more erratic and more strange. And he investigates that, and the plot just kind of unfurls from there. I don't want to say more other than the fact that I saw this at a horror festival, and in the opening credits, it says, Effects for the Creatures by. So <laughs> I mean, that sort of tips your hand a bit. <laughs> uh, I guess the other thing that will sort of tip your hand a bit is it's, it's such a theatrical movie, and I really appreciate that. It's, this, uh, this will not look like a kind comparison, but in its sort of like very theatrical nature, it almost feels like watching a prestige episode of Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. Um, Sam Neill and Isabella Johnny just go so over the top and so ridiculous almost in this depiction of a couple falling apart and falling out of love with each other. But that theatricality just works so well. And Zulaski behind the camera is just doing these insanely long, swooping takes. The camera's almost constantly in this unsettling motion, like peeking around corners and doing these like very elaborate showy stuff that it's, it's just, it's maddening to think about how they must have filmed this. It must have taken so much time and effort and concentration and thought beforehand and after and during. But it's, it's just a beautiful film to look at. And the staginess, I mean, the audience was laughing with me the whole time. Unlike Garth Marenghi, though, which is explicitly a parody, you're supposed to laugh at it. This is definitely using the audience reaction is definitely taking itself so serious that you're supposed to sort of laugh just to release the tension. And it can get really tense at points too, don't get me wrong. It's so dramatic and striking in these moments that will make then the appearance of some really odd character with specific quirks or uh, very comical sort of bumbling natures just, just be such a relief. And 
like even Sam Neill and Johnny doing these sort of breakdowns. There's just so many great <laughs> and physically draining, as the actors will point out in interviews, just emotional breakdowns that are both. I mean, I, yeah, it's they're not funny because they're so dramatic, but at the same time, you just can't help. You have to laugh because what else can you do other than just be horrified at what's going on? It's a very strange emotion it's trying to evoke. Very unlike anything I've ever really seen. But uh, yeah, Possession. It's a brilliant, brilliant movie. And they just, I mean, the reason it was being screened here specifically is they just come up with a new restoration of it. So I understand you can get a region-free Blu-ray of it, but I guess hold on a little bit and that will probably either make its way in some limited run of the theaters and then probably soon after be... Um, available to stream and purchase somewhere, I highly recommend it. It's, yeah, uh, 80s horror at its truly most weird and engaging, very much in that Cronenberg mode. Sounds fantastic. I kind of, I have a real soft spot for that kind of um, John Carpenter, David Cronenberg kind of 80s horror stuff. So all that, that, that sounds like an excellent recommendation and, and perfectly in my wheelhouse. So I'm definitely going to, definitely going to check it out. Um, for myself, uh, I'm going to recommend a book this week. I'm going to recommend a book called Side Splitter um, by a mostly English comedian called Phil Wang. Um, Phil Wang is um, actually um, half Chinese, Malaysian and half British, um, although he prefers both rather than half. Um, and it's kind of basically just a book about his life, um, what are called um, third culture kids, so um, people who are um, from two cultures but struggling basically to fit into either one of them. So basically he's too sort of Malaysian to feel British and too British to feel Malaysian. And at this point he's kind of spent half of his life in Malaysia, half of his life in, in London. Um, he's got a stand-up on Netflix, which is a very good kind of representation of what he does. It's called Philly Philly Wang Wang. Uh, catchy. And um, it's, it's, it's not necessarily, I would say, the funniest thing that you've ever seen in your life, but it's just really interesting. Uh, he's just a really interesting guy to kind of listen to. He is very funny as well, I should, I should say. I don't want to suggest otherwise. But uh, he's just a really interesting guy. And, and the book, uh, Side Splitter, is um, just him talking about a bunch of stuff. So it's not really, it's not like a memoir or anything like that, but it's like his thoughts on food or his thoughts on relationships or his thoughts on uh, history or, or whatever it happens to be. And it's just a really interesting read and and kind of talking about stuff that I think doesn't get a lot of foregrounding in uh, popular culture especially perhaps not and maybe it's different in America I can't can't sort of speak towards that but certainly as far as the UK is concerned I think things like um, third culture kids and and all that tends not to be something that gets a lot of focus when it comes to discussions around uh, immigration and discussions around, uh, you know, former colonies and all this kind of stuff. So it's really, it's really interesting to read something. And again, I should emphasize this, it's very funny too. Um, but it's really interesting to read something from that kind of perspective, which isn't just about 
um, the more familiar um, beats when it comes to those things. Particularly if you live in the UK, you'll hear a lot around uh, a, a lot around the sort of uh, Windru- Windrush immigration in the nineteen fifties from Jamaica. Uh, you'll hear a lot about uh, Indian and Pakistan immigration um, after uh, Indian independence in the nineteen fifties as well. Um, but there's a whole kind of section of uh, immigrants in the UK that doesn't really get much focus. And so listening to somebody who comes from one of those minorities, who comes from a Malaysian background, which is, you know, deeply unusual to have somebody from that background have any kind of prominence, it's just genuinely fascinating. It's really interesting to listen and hear something about, you know, a culture that, that probably most people aren't that familiar with it like i said it's a great read it's a really funny book uh and he is a great comedian so it's just it's just a really interesting sort of confluence of, of all those things uh coming together so yeah it's called side splitter um and it's by phil wang that's my recommendation this week yeah that does sound fantastic i haven't listened or read many um memoirs by comedians but it's definitely a genre that's I mean, successful for a reason they all have such like interesting takes and it sounds like that is among some the best ones. I mean, yeah, it sounds very interesting for sure. I think that about does it for uh, this week. You can always uh, email us at talkingwhotoyou at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at talkingwhotoyou. I'm on Twitter at kevkoser, K-E-B-K-O-E-S-E-R. And I keep being sporadic with recommending this, but I'm also on the podcast Total Massacre, hosted by uh, Rowan Kaiser. I just did an episode of Big Trouble in Little China and I think that's the most recent one I've done. And then I'll but just check out the rest of them as well. It's a great podcast. And yeah, and you can find more of JG's writings at www.jgmcquarry.scott and listen to his other podcast, Beatles Stuffology. Please like, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on whatever podcatcher you use to help other people find it. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, that's us completed one trilogy with Klein, and now we are going to kick off another. So we are going to do the Sixth Doctor Jamie trilogy next, and that means next time we are going to be starting with City of Spires. And we very much hope that you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking.